Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming. This is a talk about equanimity or equipoise. It's connected to Howie's talk last night. So remember what you felt and understood um, what's, if any, the, anything remains from remembering his talk. That's uh, the part that remains is what's active in our minds and what was the teaching for us. So the same thing here that uh, whatever you hear that stirs you is the version of this teaching that belongs to you. And if there's parts of it that you don't relate to or kind of don't make sense to you, then you can just leave them behind. The New Yorker magazine every week now has a caption contest at the back. I don't know, that marks me as a certain kind of person that I get the New Yorker and read it. But on the last page, they have these kind of silly drawings and they invite the readers to invent the funny punchline. I can never think of anything funny. I just look at it and I say, that's a weird picture. Like, so this one is an octopus who's lying on the psychoanalyst's couch. And uh, a few months later, the reader, one of the captions that won was, the octopus is saying, I keep forming all these inappropriate attachments. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's a Buddhist <laughs> joke. <laughs> Years ago, I used to go out with someone who was a Buddhist, and he made this Freudian slip. He was talking about the desire in his mind, the constant proliferation of wishing and wanting, and he said... He tried to use the same word, but it came out a little bit Freudianly wrong. He said, I'm going out in the world with my prehensile testicle. <laughs> he really meant tentacle. <laughs> but we used to talk about his prehensile testicle after that. <laughs> Sorry, I know we're all grown-ups here, okay? So we'll leave that. I'm not telling you who it was. <laughs> Anyway, um, Howie was saying last night that that's kind of the nature of our conditioned mind, that it's constantly setting up some kind of target that we're trying to reach or attain or something that we want to get. And the mind that says, I'll be happy if only uh, such and such a thing is in place in, on the conditioned level. And I want to leave behind everything about how wonderful it is to strive and to get what you want to set an actual goal and meet it and to have the satisfaction and joy of achievement and stuff. That is um, definitely not being scorned here. I just want to talk sort of on another level, on the level of the meditation practice that we're doing. Um, because on the relative level in the world, that's one of the sources of real happiness and joy is to actually um, do and achieve and sort of make our lives better and make the lives better for other people. So, But on a deeper level, this deeper happiness, the happiness of the Buddha that Howie talked about last night and tried to describe and persuade us all of, you know, the reality of what this message is, that's where I'm going. So I don't want to set it up that now we should all become bums when we leave here. The Buddha actually was against that. He uh, advised lay people to be competent and successful and not really to set an upper limit on their uh, aspirations, that there's no point in that. It doesn't really help you. So, um, but for wanting this deeper kind of happiness that doesn't depend on conditions, then we have to look at the way our mind is always yearning for some particular experience or construct, either for something to stay longer or for something to go away. The incessant activity of grasping and pushing and wishing, um, especially insisting on particular outcomes for our efforts. And for those who have studied the Four Noble Truths, there's a way of saying that the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, is when we get really fixated on having a particular outcome. Say some people have come to this retreat that 
you know, we want to sort of look at a decision that we need to make or something like that. And sometimes the intuition actually comes and sometimes it doesn't on a retreat. Sometimes you get what you thought you wanted when you came and other times you don't. And as the Rolling Stones said, you can't always get what you want, but if you try, sometimes you get what you need. So, you know, if we come here in order to fulfill a particular set of expectations or have it happen again as it happened on the last retreat, it very often doesn't happen. So how can we ground our practice in what's real and in what's happening here and now? with equanimity, with the capacity to be aware in the present moment, no matter what happens, like sit down and take what you get kind of thing. And somehow within our capacity to be aware and mindful of the present moment is the secret to making this amazing adjustment that brings us to a deeper level of uh, flexibility, of adaptability, of being present and going deeper than that. Another cartoon. The funny part of this talk is soon going to end, so right here. (laughs) I don't know if you also know Zippy the Pinhead, but Zippy and Zerbina have this kind of very twisted sort of stonoid humor. Um, And Zippy uh, actually went to a mindfulness course. They're pinheads and they wear these little clown suits, like they're really funny looking. And uh, Zippy said that mindfulness reminded him of the Teflon in the frying pan that keeps the the egg from sticking. It's the fried egg of your mind can slide around in the pan in a way, not getting stuck and burning uh, onto the heat. So this attitude of mindfulness and being present is actually, you know, I'm saying, talking about it, you laughed, I know, not everybody laughed. (laughs) It's living out of an awareness that can be satisfied with what we're getting and isn't limited by our reactions to experience. And although I'm saying that, you know, this is a deeper level of happiness, it's also something that's very relevant to the outer world. I hope that that will come through as I speak. But as we breathe through the day here, breathing in and out, um, each breath fresh, kind of cultivating and trying to live from having a judgment-free awareness, kind of a non-stick Uh, being with the truth in and of this present moment. Um, Have you felt sometimes the release of dissatisfaction when you suddenly realize, oh, you know, I can just be with how this is. Like in my mindfulness just now, I was walking outside and I felt myself kind of like trying really hard to be here, be here, you know, like I don't get very many chances to do walking meditation as a teacher. And then it was like, oh no, you know, I'm actually a little too far forward, what I need to be with is just as I am, you know, how I am, whatever's coming up, like not completely feeling like I'm here, like nothing so intense, but just ordinary. And at that point, there was a sort of like, oh, relax and much more pleasure and joy in the walking. It's just something as simple as that, as recognizing um, times and places in our life where we can just find the contentment in our current situation to say that actually on one level, the life that we have right now is perfect as it is and the way that we are is okay. Maybe we could just limit it to being okay. Like it's enough. What we have is enough. What we have in this moment is enough. Like it also, it almost sounds outrageous to the mind to say that just this moment, like just try it for now, you guys, it's enough this being here, words and the space between words and sitting here together, nothing so special. Doesn't it feel like we'd rather have like, I don't know what, like singing and dancing or something up front? (laughs) No, okay, (laughs) good. (laughs) You're less greedy than me, I guess. (laughs) So somewhere beyond the part of our mind that says, I must have that, or I can't put up with that. We've breathed through so many of those feelings and to arrive here. And as we're all learning together to take refuge in this capacity, simply to be aware of what is and to find our home in what is, this is something that is going to 
help us up to the very, very last moment of our life. Um, right now, I was telling Howie behind the scenes that there's a lot of unhealthy people around me, like sick, old, dying people. For some reason in my life, there's suddenly a big crop of those people. And um, my husband's mother is severely disabled by a stroke since last year. Um, my dad just got diagnosed with metastatic cancer. My sister also, you know, and it has actually affected my mood and energy. So I also kind of wanted to tell you guys this because I felt sometimes a little bit like, like in a certain way, not my usual self, needing to get used to how I'm feeling now as opposed to how I'm used to feeling even when I'm presenting. Like in a certain way, I don't give Dharma talks every single day. So when I come and sit here, I sort of think like, oh, I know how it feels to give a talk. And now from the place where I am now, it feels a little different. You know, kind of some deeper mood is there. But what I see is in that observing these people that some of them are adjusting better than others, um, using different tools to adjust. And some of them just are not able to be happy. And some of them, like my dad, whom I'm actually admiring right now at this time in his life, he says, you know, I'm not really wanting so much to think about the fact that I'm sick or what's coming. Like, as long as I'm relatively comfortable, I'm going to do as much as I can. And why should I hallucinate about, you know, what's next? I have some time now when I'm relatively pain-free. So he's in Scotland now, traveling with my stepmom, you know. And he said, I'd just be inventing things to hurt myself with. And it's true. He said, Katie, I guess I'm in denial. And I'm like, <laughs> I said, Dad, I think you're acting like a meditator. You know, just say you're living in the moment. That sounds a lot better. <laughs> anyway, so we're seeing, uh, learning the skill of being in the moment. And at sometimes being able to choose to be in the moment is a skill that is going to help us to fend off the assaults of our mind that brings on a future too soon or um, brings back a past in a way that makes it difficult to have any space to enjoy our life or just enter a moment with our cup of tea or with that bush that's full of buzzing honeybees or hear the sound of the birds like, yeah, you know, that bush, that's incredible. <laughs> so you mostly have understood that that thing it's got it's of a mythic beauty it's almost too much to bear but in this continuity of awareness what we begin to understand is watching all the changes that happen it's like taking refuge again and again in the capacity to be aware the awareness starts to strengthen and starts to have a certain kind of energy and power in it that as we see things changing and the awareness is stronger, the awareness itself starts to become more of a basis from which we live. And it starts to seem like, as uh, Manindraji used to love to say, it's all a passing show. It's like the awareness watches and then one thing happens and another thing happens and even we ourselves are part of the show. It's like all of our inside events are part of sort of the rainbow of manifestation. It's part of everything that's happening. And the awareness is somehow just watching, watching all of it. And in the stillness of just being able to know all of these changes that are happening, there is a sense of peace and there's a sense of understanding and a sense of acceptance and not getting stuck on the non-Teflon frying pan. In a sense, we see that uh, what the Buddha saw, that be the fact that things can even change, you know, and arise and pass away means that none of them has a static identity. There's no solid core somehow in everything and no essence, nothing essential about it. And in that understanding, there's a sense of peace and release that is so very beautiful and so cooling and such a relief. So today we were all paying closer attention to physical feelings, tones in the body of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So did uh, 
many of you attend to that and sense pleasure when pleasure was pleasant and I'm, yeah, I'm seeing that nod. And there's something quite distinctive, isn't there, in the flavors of pleasant and unpleasant. Like unpleasant actually is unpleasant, right? It's <laughs> rough and disagreeable. And pleasant actually is smooth and feels nice and lovely and wonderful, right? And isn't there a tendency when something's pleasant to sort of feel like you really want it to continue and stay and come back? Or you clasp it kind of and say like, even sometimes the mind will start to say, it's going to be this way now. Like I've been meditating for quite a long time and I've put in all this effort and now I've got it. (laughs) (laughs) Or in the difficulty, it's like, this is really uh, true. These are my core issues. These are the things that define me and I've always been this way and I always will be this way. It's so terrible and you feel so much shame and you feel so defined by your anger or your disappointment or whatever it is, or by your, you know, I have this pain in my shoulder because of all my bad habits and because all the things that I shouldn't have eaten, I ate, and here they are showing up. (laughs) And as soon as I leave here, I'm going to start eating those things again. (laughs) So (laughs) there's no hope. (laughs) And the mind just loves to make sort of eternal scenarios out of what is a passing experience. So... That's why we are trying to look at the experience directly kind of before that stuff can happen. And there's a, you know, very, there's a rationale to having your mindfulness and your footfall arrive at the same time and having your mindfulness be there when the breath begins, when the rising of the abdomen begins and then noticing it until it ends and stuff like that because that sense of the awareness catching up in real time with experience actually starts to give you some options and the capacity to make some distinctions. Like um, I was listening to the bees and just feeling completely flooded with ecstasy to the point where I could hardly even stand it. And this bird flew into the bush and I think a bee stung it or something because it went (laughs) like left all of a sudden. Somehow this experience was so stunning and I I had to actually stop and just acknowledge, like open myself in a sort of deeper way to what, you know, the effect of all of this on my body-mind complex was. And as I opened to it more and let go of the sort of the grasping of my mind saying, God, this is so amazing, this is so amazing, and just let it kind of move through another deeper level of insight about what the experience was, like letting it move rather than spending a lot of energy on describing it to myself and thinking about telling you guys, like, I'm going to have to put this in the talk. I'm saving it, you know. How am I going to, you know. Then as it moved, I saw the sort of relationship of the bees and my mind and sort of the bush and the totality of, you know, the boundary between me and it seemed to soften for a moment. And it was kind of a sort of a pulsation of, this one experience that was all happening together with me and all these other little buzzing beings and flowers, you know, it was sort of the subject-object distinction got softer. So when we are kind of latching on and really uh, strongly invested in the what we often call the story, there's nothing so wrong with the story except that the story starts to replace this true experience, the more basic ground of our being. Uh, where the flow uh, is happening. And it's not that the story is actually permanent. You know, the thoughts arise and pass away, but there's some way that we get sort of hooked in there into delusion, thinking that the people that we're thinking about really are those people. You know, how many conversations have we had in our minds with people that we thought were actually there? (laughs) I used in one of the Q&As an example of the rotten apple, like most of you were probably here, but I will do it again because I think it's useful to illustrate this point about just seeing what happens. So imagining that I give you, an, you ask for an apple and I give you one and you turn it around and you see that it's not a good apple, actually half of it is rotten. And what happens in your mind when that happens? You don't just see that part of the apple is good and part of the apple is bad. You start to generally say, lots of things to yourself, maybe about why I'm giving you that, why did I do that, or 
who you are and what you deserve or the whole commercial farming system and how long this is spent on a truck and whether it's been irradiated with poison gas, <laughs> you know, or et cetera, you know. Or for me, like, the one is, like, what a waste and you know, I should have eaten it sooner and, like, I don't eat enough fruit and, you know, why am I so addicted to cheese, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Or say we hand, I hand you a sweet and juicy apple out of the fridge that's perfect and is even like an heirloom variety that now is being revived, you know? Like, <laughs> and then you like it and you offer me a bite and the bite I take is much too big, right? I eat, take half of it right? and you get it back and you're like, wait a minute, I said you could have a bite. But, right? <laughs> have you guys ever seen that show Portlandia about the... You know, have you ever seen, there's an interaction that's a, about absurd kind of people in Portland, but um, that's a, a waitress is uh, with this person who's ordering food and she's saying, describing the chicken and the farm and the coop that it was in and what it's been eating and the chicken's mental states and stuff and whether or not it had a name and they have this like 45 minute conversation about what's on the menu. Like, it's just absurd and actually we all have, you know, done that with um, pretty much, uh, you know, you could get into the Zafus here, like why are they this color? You know, the other meditation center where I meditate, they're green. And do you like the green ones more? Or the wall or the, you know, how many things have your mind uh, discussed with you since you've been here? <laughs> so cultivating in the moment a passionate, kind of attention to being present and attentive to the actual felt sensations of the body is a very useful way of, it almost like diverts some of your psychic or psychological energy into actually being with something that's real. Um, the actual moment, this mindful attention intervenes and without um, stopping pleasant from being pleasant, without, uh, you know, sort of trying to shut down or not be with what's difficult, letting it be challenging or difficult, letting the sensations burn, but trying to intervene with this factor of mindfulness, which is non-reactive, non-reactive, the Teflon frying pan of the mind or whatever it is, to not carry it any further, not to judge it or to um, kind of step in like a referee between the sensation and your mind that would then like to attack with all this extra stuff. Like, okay, let's just see the situation. Let's just feel the sensation and almost like surrounding it in that awareness. And sometimes it helps to imbue your mindfulness with a sense of kindness or care or gentleness, kind of nonviolence inside. That can uh, be especially useful when we are, find ourselves caught up to really talk to ourselves a little bit about gentleness and kindness and compassion and saying like, oh, so this mind is completely, you know, frying with an obsession right now. It's kind of, it's a, it's a difficult thing to be undergoing and it's happening. Nothing, none of my strategies have been able to stop this, you know. <laughs> So to be soft and not to try to clobber yourself in that moment, non-reactivity, very, very important. Otherwise, we get into a cycle of internal violence. Has anyone here felt that way? <laughs> yeah. So non, almost an internal gentle silence of not commenting further or not carrying it further outside the moment of like, well, it will always be this way or I am this way. So when we hear, there was a question this morning about slamming doors and not to say that people should continue slamming the doors or whatever, but we hear a very sharp sound and maybe there's even a sense of alarm at the sharpness or something happens that's very difficult for us to witness or watch. Like we think something shouldn't be that way. Like the person sticks the spoon in that underneath the hot water dispenser, they stick the handle of the spoon so it's sticking up. Like, why are they doing that? You know, well, maybe you can just look, one myself can just look at the spoon and say, 
it's sticking out of there, you know, and someone had a reason to put it like that. They weren't intending to bend the grating or try to get us to accept a dirty spoon or understand, you know, like, et cetera, et cetera. It's just that first moment of saying, like, this is, this is how it is. And does it need to go any further? Like, to introduce into our mind the understanding that maybe all this extra stuff is not inevitable that maybe um, by cultivating mindfulness and presence, it starts to give us a little bit more of a choice. It doesn't mean to smash down the thoughts when they arrive. I'm going to get to that a little bit more later. But the sense that bad people are out there doing something to me can be mitigated by being present and just kind of looking at the situation and saying, this is, this is what it is. Just a sharp sound or just a sense of pressure uh, from the cushion when we've been there for a longer time. One of our teachers, Manindraji, uh, was advising a young woman who was practicing in India that she really didn't like the blaring of Indian pop music when she was trying to meditate. And anyone who's been to India just knows how loud it can be there and how poor the amplification system is so that how poor quality the music also is. And he said, just say listening, just say hearing. Hearing the sound, that's it. Doesn't have to go any farther. Just notice it. So this doesn't mean also that we're not engaged with combating harm that we see in the world um, or uh, bringing as much nonviolence as we can to situations outside ourselves or acting in appropriate ways to change what we can change. Um, When we feel suffering, when we feel anger, sometimes it's actually a signal that it's time for some action. Like one reason to not suppress or ignore times when we're not comfortable is because sometimes it may mean that we actually need to get straight with someone or try to, you know, we're not being treated with respect and something inside us knows that. They've started to show that uh, infants as young as six months uh, have a sense of justice, like by studying their eye movements of when they give one of, you know, one baby like two cookies and another baby no cookie, they get kind of alarmed, even before they can speak. So people actually have a sense of some kind of innate fairness or goodness. Or when all the babies start uh, crying together in the neonatal ward, It's empathy, they say, right? Like they hear someone else being in distress and they get into distress too. Maybe they don't really know why, but they know something isn't right with somebody. And that resonance and connection is not something that we want to stamp out in ourselves, really not. But there's a question in our own life of how much can we do and also what do we do or how can we tend to ourselves with all the distress that's available about situations that are beyond what we can do anything about? Uh, We can do kind of as much as we can do. And then uh, unless the actions of six billion ordinary people all sort of change, then maybe there's some things that are not in our, not necessarily in our grasp to be able to change. So acknowledging our limitations is a part of equanimity as a practice. It's like, in a certain sense, taking a wise panoramic view of your life or even going to the time of your death and your imagination and saying like, what did I do with my life? How did I live in the life that I had? I was born in a certain time and place. Um, Did I love well? Did I work at what I needed to work at, Um, you know? Did I live from what I valued and did I learn? Did my values uh, express themselves in the way that I lived my life? I think that's a very important um, part of living. But in a certain way, within any particular life, as we are sort of particular beings, there's only so much that we can do to make things better. And we've noticed this in moments, many moments here. It's like we're in a certain moment and you know, maybe we'd rather it was some other kind of moment, but there's not very much we can do to actually displace the experience that we're having. Sometimes we can, but other times the best solution is to uh, relax and let be 
And that becomes the appropriate response um, for much of the time that we're alive here. As Manindra said, just leave these things, whatever happens, whatever situation you see, if you cannot change it, maintain equanimity, accept it. Otherwise, there's just too much emotion. So we all know how this can work in our families at home, um, wanting people to be different, and how often our own sense of non-acceptance or you know, a certain kind of intolerance that builds up in intimate relationships gets in the way of you know, being able to appreciate who that other person is for who they are and for their path and for how different their mind might be from our mind. There's actually a meditation practice of equanimity uh, that we deliberately practice, which is a little bit different from this insight practice that we're doing here. But if any of you is interested and uh, hasn't explored it yet, if you can seek it out on uh, Buddhist websites or in the uh, online talk catalog, um, equanimity meditation practice, where you kind of consciously bring someone to mind and say, you know, I really love you, but I can't make your decisions for you. There's some way that we can't always intervene in what someone else chooses to do or to be or where to go. This one's a very useful one for parents uh, with the sort of extreme love that we may have for children and feeling like everything that troubles them troubles us so much more than it may even trouble them and all the innocent blunders that they make and stuff. Well, I love you completely, but I can't make your choices for you. It's actually not good if we intervene too much. It actually may rob someone of their sense of their own self-sufficiency or their own way of being able to solve their problems or find their way. So the suggestion is to really open to the flow in a certain way, trusting that this simple practice of opening and connecting is protective in itself, protects our mind, protects our heart. And opening to things may sometimes mean accepting pain uh, in our minds and in our mood, pain when we lose something that we really cared about. So equanimity or meditation doesn't mean that you uh, cut yourself off or shut yourself down or become even calmer necessarily. Like that idea that we have to be so calm all the time can be a real... uh, you call it a buzzkill or something like <laughs> it's as if we think we have to live our life to be enlightened in a little parenthetical space about only this big like you can be mildly happy or kind of mildly upset but that's all like you're not a, you don't have permission to really like freak out and cry or anything a friend of mine just her dog just died as i arrived on this retreat and she loved this dog and she kept it alive through various health crises and stuff and Uh, She was waiting and seeing if she would have to take him to the vet and put him to sleep if he got to be in too much pain. And he finally died, I guess, last Friday after we'd been talking a lot about all of this. And she wrote, um, you know, I'm really going to miss him, the way that he would stare into my eyes and the way when I would scratch his belly, he would prop his paw against me. You you know how they do that sort of dogs? They push against you with their paw. And then she listed a bunch of other super endearing his sense of humor and his mischief and all this stuff. And then she said, this is grief, the joy of having known him mixed with the pain of his loss. And you sense just the beauty of her being there with all of it, like honoring the care that she had for that animal and opening to it and not closing herself down, letting it flow. This is grief. So we can say it to ourselves sometime You know, this is how it feels to be going through what I'm going through. This is anger. This is uh, sorrow. This is shame. And there's something that starts to be liberated when we're open that way. It's hard to explain. You have to kind of experience it. Um, Something deeper than the story when you're with yourself at this deeper level. Rodney Smith says, From now, when he talks about being in the moment now, like really alive in the moment now, neither the story nor the judgment can be maintained. Memories may come, 
emotions may arise, but they don't form anything solid because now doesn't hold that solidity, doesn't hold a person as an entity. So you can see when you're really present, there's something kind of edgeless about it. There's something, it's neither the past nor the future, nor really, um, you know, there's something almost like there's not so much going on. And if you're really in the present moment, not solid. Now sees through the transparency of experience. Awareness pours through all the structures. If there's flinching away from now, the story springs back to life. So as I was being present with those bees outside and letting the experience of feeling ecstatic kind of not make a story, but just be felt like allowing the feeling to be there, it wasn't like there was so much of a Leela. It was more like a Leela being me, uh, more like what the name Leela means, which is like a play or a show of a kind of something manifesting, but not being held, not being held so tightly. So encouragement to just observe. And it doesn't mean detaching, like that's called the near enemy of equanimity, to feel like you're, like you're not uh, part of it, or you're like static, or you're behind a glass, you're in the special 100 or maybe $400 air-conditioned skybox watching everything happen. No, it's actually, you're kind of observing and participating in the constant arising and passing away of things. It's not, you're kind of in it, but you're also able to see clearly. So in this kind of co-creation, or call it almost like participatory equanimity, um, the physical pain may come and go, but... In a sense, there are times when you see that the mental suffering uh, can be less when you're fully, fully open in your heart, fully, fully present. So the attention, as I said a little bit earlier, comes into the picture and kind of short circuits the reactivity to some degree. That's why we ask you to really feel the sensations of breath or really feel the sensations in your body because when you're that close in, uh, the concepts don't have a chance to intervene. In the Theravadan Vipassana practice, we call those ultimate dharmas, that um, they're not a concept. So when you sense your foot, and it's just a mass of tingling, or right now you could feel your uh, buttocks on the cushion or the chair, and if you sense in there quite clearly, you won't be able to find exactly the sensation of the beginning of the cushion or the chair, or you won't, it's very difficult to know when your hand is on your leg, where the leg ends and the hand begins, if you look quite closely in there. And that's something that you can try for yourself any time. Like feet don't, in the sensation world, don't really have a shape. It's the mind that brings in a picture of there being like an image of the skeleton that's in there. I'm not saying it's not in there, but on the level of pure sensation, uh, you can't really feel your skull. So on a practical level, this uh, practice of close observation and uh, bringing that awareness that isn't judging and yet is connected starts to bring us to a level of peace as we develop this kind of flexibility to be present with a variety of things. And we're present in our imperfect way. That's a very important thing to know that meeting our experience as it is um, is almost sort of indefinite or something like we can go right up close to it. And sometimes it can feel very precise, but other times it feels a little bit kind of less than, it feels a little, I don't know, like there's some play in it. And that's a kind of important thing to do is to like go really close in and then pull back a little bit and almost let the, let the object of awareness express itself in your direction. Like don't be smashing in or trying to grab it and twist it and throttle it and smash it and get to the center of it and err. Um, there are times in practice when that is appropriate, but mostly a certain kind of gentle, gentle connecting kind of feeling is uh, better. 
And awareness and mindfulness has to be connected to an actual experience in order to really function properly. Scientific American, uh, a couple of years ago, wrote a study of, um, they surveyed 5,000 people. You may have heard about this study where they randomly called people on their cell phones and asked them, what are you doing right now? And will you rate your scale of happiness from one to 10? Some of you have heard about this. <laughs> a few people responded while they were having sex and they said they were having a pretty good time. <laughs> but about 50% of people responded that they were distracted. They were, their mind was wandering and a wandering mind is not a happy mind. So what this long and short of it is, and I'm just going to read from the Scientific American article, an unnervingly large fraction of our thoughts, almost half, are not related at all to what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, maybe more than half. <laughs> right? You guys are like a really good statistical sample. Surprisingly, we tended to be elsewhere, even for casual and presumably enjoyable activities, like watching TV or having a conversation. While you might hope that all this mental wandering is taking us to happier places, the data say otherwise. Just like the wise traditions teach, we're happiest when thought and action are aligned, even if they're only aligned to wash the dishes. So they went on to say, ironing a shirt and thinking about ironing a shirt is a happier experience than ironing a shirt and thinking about a romantic getaway, actually. So there's something about being present and being collected and being with ourselves that is important. And the Buddha discovered this and it's sort of a, you know, it's a surprising kind of discovery. He's like one of the great world geniuses to discover this amazing thing that actually being connected makes us happy because you might think that it wouldn't. So here we are conducting a kind of higher educational training. This Scientific American article went on to say, like, we don't know why we're so distracted, but it seems like maybe there's no evolutionary, like, too big of a punishment for it. We can still survive and live to a rather old age. Like, we have enough attention to keep us alive. Like, this I wonder sometimes when I'm driving down the Jamaica Way in Boston, which is a really fast two-lane road, like, knowing how distracted people are, why aren't there more car crashes? You know, well, apparently we're connected enough to drive like that, but maybe we're not connected enough to reach an optimal level of thriving and flourishing, which you could have if you're training yourself like this to be present. That's my theory. You can play with it uh, after the retreat, I guess. Um, so back to the definition that several of you asked to be repeated that I offered the first night. Happiness, a deep sense of flourishing that arises from an exceptionally healthy mind. A deep sense of flourishing that arises from an exceptionally healthy mind. So the key word here is actually the exceptionally part, exceptionally healthy. Like, we are trying here to cultivate an exceptionally healthy relationship with what is. And the exceptionally part, which is just so extraordinarily bizarre and not what we think when we have our, you know, sticky testicle of a mind, is that happiness is not a feeling. Happiness is not an emotion. Happiness is not a mood. Happiness is not a particular experience. You can't find it somewhere out there or in here. Howie said that eloquently last night. Um, it's more like a skill or an attitude or a way of meeting all this changing experience, all this alternation of pleasure and pain and neutrality that we're not necessarily all in control of. So we can enjoy walking outside, but when that experience comes to an end, then we're ready to come inside. We're not like little kids at the fun fair who are exhausted and sick from eating too much candy and screaming and we can't get them in the car, yeah, right? It's the same kind of with love as wisdom or presence. Simone Weil said, it's necessary to understand that love is an attitude, not a state. Otherwise, when the first affliction or problem comes along, you will fall into despair. 
Love is an attitude. It's like a, a way that we meet experience, a way that we meet people. It's not like dwelling in this bliss of romance, as anyone who's been in a relationship for more than about two weeks <laughs> knows. <laughs> <laughs> They throw their socks on the floor, right? They, right? <laughs> MoveOn.org, talk about meeting situations. Um, and MoveOn.org, after Katrina happened, um, there were, they posted a lot of ads for people willing to take strangers in, displaced and homeless people made homeless by Katrina. My mom and I rent out our rooms usually, but in this case, it would be free. We're in New York State, which is a ways away for you guys, but we're willing to help in any way we can. We live in a beautiful town with a great community and a safe environment. We're not wealthy, but we will give all that we can. I live in a nice middle-class neighborhood. I am disabled and am at home all day, so I can watch child while mother and father look for work. My wife is a preschool teacher. Prefer non-drinking or drugs. Elderly couple, okay also. Pets, okay. Big backyard. We have two pot-bellied pigs and two cats. We are all new at this, but feel comfortable. But you may feel comfortable to call us collect. We're so horrified by the scenes on television. So the nature of our conditioned mind might be to be afraid of the unknown and afraid of opening ourselves to experiences again and again with a fresh heart. This testicle mind, the octopus mind, really that believes there's a state of stability that we can reach where everything is going to be kind of normal finally and nothing is going to happen to rain on our parade. Pinning things down again and again and again, like, well, I have, you know, it's enough cleaning up after the pigs and the cats. I don't think I want to bring some strangers from New Orleans into my life. And what is the generosity or the open-heartedness of this attitude that, you know, passionately is willing to be just here no matter what, rain or shine, like the flowers that open uh, not knowing what the weather will be, if all their petals are going to get ripped off the first day or they'll get to stay longer. That's kind of what we're unconditionally present and being open that way. There was a time when I was doing a Tibetan practice that involved imagining giving a lot of things away, like giving away even things I didn't own and like that, and enriching the whole world with all this giving and giving and giving. And at some point it started to happen on its own and it seemed like everything was kind of going away from me somehow a little bit faster than I wanted it to, like, <laughs> you know. So I went to this teacher and I said, ah, you know, like, it's all like going away from me and I can't hang on to it anymore. And he looked at me and he said, are you afraid that things are empty or that they aren't? You know, like if things were completely solid, it would really be quite difficult to live. Like we probably, we wouldn't be able to leave the room. <laughs> a flower wouldn't be able to turn into a flower. A seed wouldn't be able to change into something else. There would be no room. If we didn't die, no other generations could uh, come and enjoy the planet. So awakening is not an experience of uh, rainbows and ecstasy and reaching some spiritual state. It's not, I'm not saying that those states don't happen at times. But the rainbow kind of special thing where you feel like you're hovering above the floor in some amazing bliss cocoon, um, how he talked about that last night, isn't really what it's about. It's more like letting go of whatever's in the way. Um, who was it that said Sharda, my co-teacher, said, this place is more like a dump than a store. <laughs> See, it's not a place where you're going to get something. It's more like getting rid of stuff or letting go of stuff. Letting go of what stands between us and living in this moment. I would say awakening is more akin to letting go of the alternative uh, to being here or to being as we are. So those ordinary happy moments and moments of pleasure will uplift us and give us a sense of the nobility of life as we experience them without holding on. The beautiful moments and the difficult moments will help us to let go. Like um, 
the feedback we might get from the world about where we're not kind of in harmony, like our friends may tell us or our life may tell us that we keep bumping into the same pain and we need to learn a different way of being is kind of like a signal. Um, maybe we all know that somehow we have these patterns and we're lucky if often we need someone else to help us through, like to love us and make us see that we're lovable or to help us point out the ignorant way that we're not really seeing ourselves clearly. All of those things are part of the symphony of our life and none of them is to be left out. It's as if, you know, the wholeness of living in this way, the wholeness of equanimity that lets you travel through all the parts of yourself and be a complete human being, like not to have, you know, weird trips around money or love or, you know, whatever it may be, like to really be willing to see where you're hanging on. There's also those moments of neutrality, which uh, for the next coming days of practice, when nothing much particular is happening, I encourage you to start to uh, appreciate the bliss of neutral feeling when it's not really so much going on. When I uh, got with the man who's now my husband, he had a daughter and I was a stepmother all of a sudden. And I had this sense of not really belonging, like I wanted to be like in the cocoon of family life with them, like the intensity and the depth of their relationship, as tumultuous as it often was, I still felt like somehow I was in a family and I wasn't really part of it and it was excruciating for me. So I kept kind of assaulting them and saying, let me in, let me in, which only kind of caused them to be disgusted, <laughs> I think, in a way. I mean, I'm not to laugh at it. It was actually a very interesting set of feelings that came up, I think, for all of us trying to get together and form the kind of family that we have eventually formed now. And I came and talked to Joseph about it, uh, Joseph Goldstein, who lives next door. And he said, why don't you enjoy the space of not being quite so in there with them? <laughs> what? It's, it's very Joseph, it is. <laughs> But actually, I started to learn that when, when I felt the most excruciatingly lonely, that if I went and kind of went shopping or took care of myself, that it was really good. Like by the time I came back, they wanted me there rather than me trying to get in there. Or they would be fighting, which was really gratifying. It would be like, <laughs> <laughs> like hi. <laughs> <You> know, like <laughs> they didn't have the united front to keep me out anymore. That was a good trick. But anyway, to have that sense of like now really appreciating this young person who's in my life, but not actually having to be her mother. Like it's a special kind of love that I feel where there's a huge amount of delight and a huge amount of also like respect, mutual respect and friendship. But I, what I feel is not the sort of extra inordinate, inordinate, anyway, the, the motherhood thing. Um, so I might like to, suggest that as a model for interpersonal equanimity is like to really enjoy the person but not um, also get so into the incredible abrasiveness of having such powerful expectations for how they're going to behave. And of course, if something happens to this girl who's 27 now, I'll feel all the tremendous, tremendous sadness and grief. You know, like there's actually a deep connection between us formed along the lines of what's appropriate, which started with friendship and grew into love uh, between us. So it's not an uncaring uh, thing, but it's also a kind of spacious relationship with life. The very, probably the most famous quotation about equanimity is from, or in our tradition anyway, about from Ajahn Chah. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surrounding, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So we're coming near the end of the time for the talk and I would like to just 
bring us to an appreciation of the noble silence that we have here and to let yourself kind of bask in and rely on the silence, not necessarily being attached to it, like someone was saying, like it can be very blissful to really experience and let the silence kind of into your heart and let that be in a certain sense a part of your mindfulness, like the external and literal silence and also the internal, liter- the internal silence of mind that really allows your experience to unfold without opposition. That's one of the definitions of equanimity is that it doesn't oppose experience. So when your mind is embroiled and suffering and sort of you're in one of those tortured moments, if you can remember just a kind of internal silence to, with which to observe the mood or the internal weather, the storm that you're undergoing, it can be like a balm, B-A-L-M, not a B-O-M-B, <laughs> right? Something soothing, like some part of you simply knows that this is happening, this is happening for me right now. You can even say that this is what it's like right now. This is what it's like. And there's this little kind of internal capacity that we have to very simply be aware and to know and to find that kind of center point, the still point of the turning world that how we talked about yesterday, where, for example, you feel a deep, deep craving quite intimately. And I think it's interesting that in a way the solution for desire is to be intimate with the desire maybe not with the person. I received an anonymous note about crushes on retreat, and there is surely not just one person who's undergoing this, and I myself have had them, so I know that they happen. And to let yourself really sense and feel that um, sweetness and the pull and the pull to not be with your experience and the pull to want and think that you're going to only be happy when you have that object and stuff, to really let the feeling happen in a deep way, but without acting on it, for one thing, and also from a position of kind of being silent within it. Um, The feeling can really change when you're fully present with it that way. It sort of goes to another level, and you start to really see that it's only a movement of mind, it's only an experience, and... When you start to know that almost, well, all of your experiences are only experiences, there's an understanding of freedom that can dawn. It's like the awareness is more powerful than the overwhelmingness of the experience. So when you're overwhelmed by lust or desire or aversion, have a sense that this is a challenge to your awareness to become as big as the storm that you're feeling. And you can even imagine that your awareness is the size of the earth or the cosmos or space and let your experience be as big as it wants and invite your awareness to be equally as big as the experience. It's quite a wonderful practice. Um, But maintaining the silence, not intruding on one another here, I mean, I think that's really critical because sometimes what happens, you will find at the end, the first time you hear that person talk, you're like, oh no. (laughs) No, you know, it's not real. What's happening in your mind here is not real. So please don't reach out and please don't intrude on each other, please. Like, and don't leave notes in each other's shoes and don't do that stuff. (laughs) Whoever it is that you're fixated on is having their own experience. And um, it's really, really, really important to respect that. But it's not about controlling your feeling. It's about maintaining, uh, what was it, sobriety on the outside and ecstasy on the inside? You can try that. So it's not exactly like letting your emotions go wild. It's watching them from a place of silence, knowing that anger is a feeling in the mind. It's a feeling plus a story. Anger is also something that registers physically. So one of the wonderful ways of resolving strong feelings is to sense down into the body and feel them grounded in the body, feel emotions grounded in the body. The mind and the body are not separate as we've been learning more and more scientifically and as we can see here. 
this angry state will come and go. It's very good also not to make those phone calls from the middle of the retreat. Um, it's good to wait until things have resolved kind of more and more again and again. We're with it. And it's as if the compelling obsessive power is weakened. It's almost, you can almost view it as a battle between awareness and obsession in some of these things where it's like the, um, Sokni Rinpoche uses the example of a wonderful example of the Terminator movies or any kind of monster movie where this superhuman monster is chasing you and you turn around and you like hit it with a ray gun and you hit it again and it keeps coming and finally after enough you know mindful moments it just drops dead at your feet <laughs> you know it can feel a little bit like that um, that just because you're mindful of something doesn't mean it's going to stop but actually over time awareness transforms your experience of things um, so you can actually simply have the notion that you're going to know what is happening and remaining as present and balanced as you can on all levels. So that's sort of the secret, is remaining connected and watching these experiences and letting yourself be vulnerable. It's like you almost can't have true equanimity without being in touch with the quivering or the instability of experience. It's like they go hand in hand. Equanimity isn't flat. It's also about being with the changes and actually, actually feeling what's going on, actually being present. It's out of that uh, connection with impermanence that true equanimity uh, arises. It's also true in the sense of equanimity emotionally, which is not separate from the equanimity of mindfulness, that true equanimity is really being present with the vulnerability and the fragility of beings and knowing uh, that we all change and we're really, in a sense, all the same. We're all quite fragile and vulnerable. So to end the talk, one equanimity phrase, and then I will do a short guided meditation by a, a teacher named Ronald Havens, who's actually a hypnotist. May I be free from preference and prejudice. May I be free from preference and prejudice. May I know things just as they are. May I experience the world knowing me just as I am. May I see into whatever arises. So the last words of the Buddha before he died were to be your own light. And I want to hand back to you after the talk the light of your own awareness to investigate whether anything of what I said is true for you. Whether awareness is actually a balancing and equanimity bringing thing. Equ awareness in the moment. So the poem, or uh, sort of guided meditation by this man, um, Ronald Havens, is on the theme of be your own light. So I just want to read it a little bit slowly and invite you into a sort of open state of listening for it. Be your own light. This is a much shortened version of it. Start from scratch. No myths to ignore. No superstitions to disprove. No fantasies to escape. No ignorance to overlook. No words for anything. Nothing to believe unless you want to. Let go of all the rest and try being your own light. Lighting your own way, finding the truth for you. Right now. That's right. Take your time. Let the thoughts settle out the way water clears when you just let it sit. And then the light can shine through it. 
no snowflake ever falls in the wrong place. Actually, the last line I added from a Zen teaching, but let us be able to be with things just as they are, discovering the peace that's already here. Thank you.